Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Movie Oubliette, the equator-bridging podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, reeling from the experience of Jordan Peele's Nope in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> and me, Dan, experimenting with Satan in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really sinister. <laughs> we obsess over horror, sci-fi and fantasy cinema because we love severed heads, mad scientists with secret labs in their dingy concrete basements and unexpected 20-minute dirt bike chase scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hello, Conrad. How are you? Hello, Dan. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. So I'm I'm still not vegan, but yeah, Satan intrigues <laughs> me. It's such a an odd sort of uh, phenomenon that you can make with, with gluten flour. Um, yeah, in the experimentation stage, I think I get it now, but uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's been interesting. Yes, it's almost like sourdough bread, those people with sourdough starters. It seems to be like a weird alchemy you have to do to get it right. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few processes. You definitely have to um, boil or steam uh, the seitan before you fry it or bake it because it right. gets very chewy if you don't do that. So <laughs> I worked that out the hard way. Right, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it always reminds me of the 3D printed meat like we saw in Antiviral. Uh, the, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that was celebrity meat. But I think it was actually Satan, wasn't it? I think that was yeah, the connection that's in right. my brain. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're making celebrity meat. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> and you saw Nope. Good movie. Yes, I really enjoyed it. A yes yeah. for Nope. <laughs> Yes for Nope. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I need to see it again to fully appreciate it. Um, And I won't spoil it for anybody. I mean, I know it's been out in the States for a while and it will have been by the time this episode Mm. comes out. Um, But yes, I really enjoyed it. And it has some really nail-biting sequences in it, Mm. particularly one involving a chimp. (laughs) I won't say anymore. Wow, okay. Sounds great. (laughs) It is definitely is. So, Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? Well, yes, we did hear from that wicked person. After we asked him, he mentioned that he had a uh, religious uh, parents, and we were asking whether all children of religious parents end up with extrasensory gifts, and he replied, am I telepathic? See, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely played. (laughs) Nicely done. Boss Salvage got in touch when we were talking about black and white versions of colour movies. And he said, I was taking a flight one holiday season and decided to splurge and pay to watch Home Alone. The colour cut out five minutes in. So I summoned the flight attendant, who was very sorry, but could do nothing but ply me with vodka crayons. (laughs) 
Right. It turned out Home Alone Noir was an unexpectedly fun, if even darker, twist on a well-loved classic. Ah, <laughs> yes. I think I replied to I that because it. It, it would match up with the, the old-timey movie that Kevin McAllister is watching. It, it would, yeah. It's yeah. very true. But, uh, yeah, it would have cast the whole thing in very, very stark contrast. Oh, yes. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> On Waterworld, we were talking about the fact, or Mikey was talking about the fact that his partner uh, remembered the water show, the the sort of live stunt mm, show, yes. more than the actual film. Um, and uh, Yom got in touch to say, I saw this show in Japan. It was spectacular. We were surprisingly close to the action as well. I remember feeling the intense heat from the explosions. Great fun. Oh, so, wow. Maybe the water show is the thing to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's strange when it goes the other way around, where a, a ride becomes a movie. I find that so <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, or Jungle yeah. Cruise is another one. Yes, that's true. Why yeah. are they doing this? <laughs> well, Disney, where the yeah. story never ends. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Eddie said, speaking of post-apocalyptic movies, you mustn't forget the 1987 quote-unquote classic Steel Dawn starring Patrick Swayze. It's a movie? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I have not seen that. I haven't seen that either. No. I wonder if we should check it out. Mm. He also said, here's a list of some post-apocalyptic films that I like. Some of these are a bit over the top. Okay. Uh, Battle Truck from 1982. Oh. Don't know it. No, I don't know that one. A Boy and His Dog from 1975. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yep, same here. It's Don Johnson, isn't it, I think, in the lead role. Mm, but a sure. young Don Johnson. Yes. Uh, Defcon 4 in 1985. Nope. Don't know it. The Blood of Heroes, 1989. Nope. Nope. Wow. Familiar? Nope. And America 3000 from 1986. No. Wow. So a lot of movies that we, we've got to just add to the oubliette. We do. We'll have to just pile them all in there for the uh, for the apocalypse session, perhaps when the apocalypse itself gets closer. Yes, yes, yes. And then this was a this was a response to our Minnesota where we talk about books yes. that we've been reading and also other post apocalyptic movies. Yeah, we talked about the whole genre in our Minnesota, so Yes, if you want to be a patron, head on over to Patreon and you can get all these extra goodies. Yes, yes, yes. And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Woo! Hello, Surge. (laughs) Hello, Surge. And he said, I don't think Waterworld deserves its nasty reputation. It's meticulously crafted and imaginatively staged. My one big complaint is that I'm never really sure what motivates most of the characters from scene to scene. They tend to lurch from being heroic and monstrous without much warning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did touch on that, yes. We did. Uh, he, and he also said, to put it another way, the world made me wish the movie were longer. The characters made me wish the movie were shorter. <laughs> yeah, I would 100% agree. Yeah, I do. I love yeah. the world building in it. Well, it could very well come back. Who knows? In these days of streaming, we we could see Waterworld the series. Yeah, would not surprise. In me. which everything will be CGI, which they can do now. Yeah. So it'll Apparently. be less expensive. <laughs> it would be, 
it would all look terribly, terribly fake, but there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for getting in touch, and please send in some more messages. Yes, please do. We love hearing from you. Okay, Conrad, what are we going to be doing today? Well, let me just dirt bike on over to the oubliette to find out. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there you go. Short trip. Okay, let's just open this up. Oh. <sighs> I'm in an operating theatre of some kind. Lots of nurses. Yes, loads of them. Okay, you, sponge. You, mosquito clamp. You, another mosquito clamp. Okay, Uh, okay, I've extracted the movie. I'm heading back. Oh, my genius must be allowed to continue. What do you have today, Conrad? I have The Thing with Two Heads, a 1972 American black exploitation film directed by Lee Frost, written by Lee Frost, Wes Bishop and James Gordon White, starring Ray Milland, Rosie Greer, Don Marshall, Roger Perry, Kathy Bauman and Chelsea Brown. Wow. So The Thing with Two Heads. What's that about? Yeah. Two heads? <laughs> Not surprisingly, yes. <laughs> it's about a transplant expert and proud racist, Dr. Maxwell Kirshner, who's rushing to perfect his experimental head-swapping surgery before he succumbs to chest cancer. When Kirshner's health fails, his best friend, the helmet-haired Dr. Desmond, and about 300 nurses secretly <laughs> graft his head onto the shoulder of African-American death row inmate Jack Moss who only volunteered for an unspecified medical experiment to buy his wife time to prove his innocence. When the odd couple wake up, Moss discovers he only has 28 days before they plan to cut off his head and let Kirshner take over his body and Kirshner is horrified to discover that he's now 90% black. Mm. (laughs) The thing with two heads goes on the run with Dr Williams, a transplant rejection expert Kirshner hired on reputation alone and then fired when he found out he was black. Mm. Several reels of dirt biking and police car crashes later, (laughs) Moss and Williams sneak back into Kirshner's secret basement operating theatre to dispose of the evil doctor for good. But will they get there before Kirshner gains control of Moss's body and achieves his dastardly goal of immortality? Find out Mm. after the break. Yes. (laughs) And we will be joined by a very, very special guest who chose this movie for us. Yes. A third head. (laughs) (laughs) After the break. (laughs) After the break. Our special guest today has designed, painted, sculpted, puppeteered or sweatily performed some of the most iconic moments in almost 40 years of sci-fi fantasy and horror cinema. From puppeteering the Terminator's eye operation, terrorising the monster squad as the Gill Man, stalking Ripley as a xenomorph, to realising dinosaurs for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and a certain evil clown for It. It's actor, director, producer and Oscar-winning special effects genius Tom Woodruff Jr. Hello, sir. That sounds, wow, that sounds very important, all that stuff. Who knew? (laughs) 
We are very excited to talk to you. You are kind of legendary for a generation of horror and sci-fi movie buffs. Oh, that's very nice. The uh, It's funny from this vantage point to look back at some of these movies, you know, that, that uh, I can't say this is one that inspired me, certainly, but at the age I was when I saw it, you know, there was a, a different set of eyes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Well, the movie that you've brought to us to look at today is The Thing with Two Heads, uh, not one that I had even heard of before. Dan, had you? No, no never heard of it. Never <laughs> heard of it. So it's deep in the oubliette. Uh, Tom, perhaps you could kick us off by talking about how you first came across this film and what impact it had on you. Well, you know, I'm thinking the, the uh, maybe it's not good to rescue this from complete obscurity because this was a very early Rick Baker uh, movie. And there were some other ties with my getting into the industry as well. So at that point in my life, you know, I, I think it was, uh, so I was 13 years old okay. and I'd been, uh, uh, I've just been crazy about monsters since it's about the age of six. And I think what sort of started me on this path was uh, I lived on the East Coast and um, Saturday night would be Chiller Theater. It was one of those shows that had a horror host and, uh, and he'd show movies, right? But the movie that was, he was going to be showing this upcoming Saturday was the original Boris Karloff Frankenstein movie. And um, somewhere along the road, I had done something or had not done something so well in school. So my dad said that uh, all the monster stuff was going to be off limits till I brought my grades up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and luckily, luckily, my mom was not quite as strict. <laughs> and I'm, my dad had to leave Saturday night to go on some errand, and my mom let me turn the TV on. I think that was the first time I was ever really um, introduced to a monster movie, and we came in right around the time when uh, the uh, Karloff Frankenstein monster was uh, going through the woods and found the little girl, and I, I'm watching, and I'm, I'm remembering, oh, this is the scene, this is the scene, the famous monsters of film man said was so controversial and led to editing, and now I'm going to see it on TV. And just as it was about to happen, I was seeing the headlights of my dad coming back in the car. Oh, no. On our <laughs> my mom turned it back. And I'm going, oh. oh no. But man, did that ever leave a uh, really, it really obviously struck a chord with me. And, and having it to be something as classic and you know, powerfully classic in, in, in the monster genre, not just the monster genre, but movies of the 30s and 40s, mm. that was just, uh, it was just really, really exciting. I can imagine. So did you see this movie on the same horror show? No, this movie is a, a classic of a different kind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when this thing came out, let's see, okay, so I'm living with my family in Pennsylvania, in North Central Pennsylvania. And uh, my dad had this travel trailer and we would go off to camp in the woods and different places. And this particular weekend, Friday night, when it was going to be on, it was planned that we were going to be down in uh, Lancaster. You know, as a, as a just as a trip to get away for the weekend, and and I went and and I posed this great idea, and I said, "Hey, Dad, I think I'm old enough to stay home this weekend by myself, mm. and I'd like to do that." And of course, I didn't tell him why. I said, "I'd like to do that," and he said, "All right, well, let's do that." So uh, it came along, and uh, and everybody left, and I got ready, and came on Friday night, watched the show, and this was always the, the other thing that struck me in a bad way was movies that come on late at night they would invariably kind of lull me to sleep. Oh. And there were so many times that I would wake up just as the movie was over. There was something about the closing theme or theme song or something that would wake me up. And I think, ah, oh, 
missed it again. But I knew this one was coming, and uh, I was already geared up to love it because, again, it was another movie of note from uh, Forey Ackerman in Famous Monsters of Filmland. And, and at that time, it was even pointing out this uh, makeup genius kid, Rick Baker. Ah. So I watched the movie, and uh, let's see, was every frame actually golden, or is that just the way I remember it? <laughs> we, we, um, the movie is over, and uh, and it's probably like 11 o'clock now, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And uh, I'm not so happy being home, home alone. <laughs> and for some reason, my dad thought to, you know, call me on the phone and make sure everything's going okay. And that was uh, uh, well before cell phones. And so, um, you know, he called me on the house phone. I picked it up. He said, is everything good? And I said, yeah. He goes, uh, uh, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. He said, uh, do you wish you would have come here? Yeah. And he said, well, <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, I will drive back tonight and I'll pick you up. Oh, wow. So he got back around 1130, quarter to 12, picked me up, and then took me down to join the rest of the family. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's actually, that part of it is actually more touching to me now than I was able to appreciate back then. But having had kids of my own now, it makes total sense that you'll do almost anything for your kid, particularly uh, uh, if it favors you watching a horrible monster movie. <laughs> yes. Well, this particular film hails from a subgenre or a movement of filmmaking that I'm not particularly familiar with. It's a black exploitation movie, mm -hmm. and the monster of the piece could very well be its central character, played by Ray Milland in his twilight years. He plays a pioneering transplant doctor who is also, let's face it, he's a racist bigot. Mm. Yes. Um, but I don't think the film is presenting him as the hero by any means <laughs> no not at all but again funny you know again from my position uh, right right now my age and, and my experience now to realize you know that this was you know certainly on the, the downside of rainland's um, work in movies but still there there it was and he was in another movie around the same time not not, not a black exploitation movie but a science fiction movie called frogs Oh. And if you think the thing with two heads is tough to get through, boy, <laughs> frogs. It's like, seriously, what, what can frogs do on this island? Uh, you know, Ray Milan is going to pick up a paycheck one way or the other. So uh, God bless him in his choices. <laughs> I guess that happens to actors at a certain point in their career. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably the way to look at this because the whole black exploitation. But I, I never saw it as black exploitation movie. Obviously, I'm too. I'm, I was too young at the time. But certainly, the only other movie which was also a black exploitation movie was Blackula mm. with uh, William Conrad. Mm. And um, I think I was drinking the uh, famous Monsters of Filmland magazine kool-aid to think <laughs> anything that Corey ackerman mentions is something to be followed so uh that's certainly what uh what this movie was as well as uh blackula yeah. I, i'm sorry i'm just pulling it up here because uh, i love the one sheet that says they transplanted a white bigot's head onto a soul brother's body uh, <laughs> and uh I think anybody that sees the movie, much less sees the poster, it's sort of redundant for it to have to be explained that way. <laughs> yes. Well, the soul brother in question is played by Rosie Greer, Roosevelt Greer, not a name I'm familiar with. Apparently, he's the cousin of Pam Greer. He's a former professional football player, an ordained Protestant minister, an actor, a singer, so quite the polymath. And in this film, he plays a character called Jack Moss, who's a convict, but 
but he's presented by the film as completely innocent. He's the hero of the piece, yeah. which is quite unusual for black exploitation movies where the exploitative element is depicting black culture in America as being riddled with seedy crime. Yeah. And this is also is in stark contrast to the other film with a very similar plot that came out the year before called The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, where the source of the head being transplanted was a South American character who was a serial killer and rapist. Mm. So not the best depiction of its non-white characters in The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, uh, which featured the unlikely pairing of Bruce Dern as a mad scientist and his best friend Casey Kasem. That's funny, right? Yeah, that's true. That's funny, but... um... That was garbage compared to the thing with two heads, I've got to say, <laughs> in every way. Yeah. <laughs> Filmatically in, in every way. I mean, that was brilliant, right? To uh, to give Rosie Greer a, um, not not Rosie Greer alone, but to give the character a reason for allowing this, this head to be transplanted on his shoulder, you know? Because yeah. not any surprise, but these movies, you know, were not really there so much for the story. It's just the, 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 the weird uh, uh, visuals that you were going to sit through for 90 minutes. Mm. And I wonder, too, if the casting of Rosie Greer was such a, he was a very broad guy, you know, the, the yeah. football player body. I wonder if that came into play, you know, giving a place to, to stick a Ray Milan head on his shoulders. Oh, sure, um, sure. Because yeah. certainly if you would have had a more slender guy, you know, it would have been one head here and one head down here on the shoulder. It wouldn't have been quite as pretty. Yeah, I think it's also to hide the second person being pretty much, I guess, piggybacking him. Is that how they did it? Yeah. I, don't, I don't really, yeah. I wasn't sure. Rosie Greer was big enough that I understand Ray Milland had a, a chair to sit on behind him, as well as a desk and a, <laughs> uh, and a small uh, portable oven. And he had a whole apartment right. room behind his body yeah. so that Ray Milland could be comfortable there. <laughs> The scene that really stuck out to me was that surgery scene mm-hmm. with that that model head. Incredible! Like mm-hmm. it made me very uncomfortable. Yeah, it did right when right. they were sort of transporting that head over. It wasn't particularly bloody or gory, was it? No, it was just odd to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a, a makeup artist that I had known of years before I went out to uh, Los Angeles, you know, to struggle and find work, uh, and his name is Tom Berman. And Tom Berman's career. It's funny how many how many things his hands touched that also affected me and my love of everything monster. But some of his earliest work was for uh, the mask maker Don Post Studios, and that was that became huge in the '60s. Everything about monster became huge in the '60s, and I found out not too long ago. But I found out the reason was Universal Studios released all of their classic monster movies to television. Like the whole thing went in a package. So. Now it was more possible for me to see the original Frankenstein and all the sequels and the Wolfman and the Mummy movies and all that stuff that before was really hit and miss. And when that happened, they they say that that's the generation. I was right at the right age for the generation that became known as the Monster Kids, Mm. where everything in the 60s was cool. Aurora Monster Models and Famous Monsters Magazine and soundtracks and the Castle films, all of that stuff became the stuff that I grew up with a real interest and a passion for. Mm. Yeah. We've come across Tom Berman's name in other films we've covered before The Thing with Two Heads, actually. Uh, Howard the Duck, sadly, was one of them. (laughs) But his list of accomplishments 
performance speaks for itself. Tellingly, in comparison with this film, his specialization now seems to be medical dramas yeah. like Grey's Anatomy. Mm. Well, I certainly, you know, when I, when I have visited him and his wife, Barry Dryband Berman, the, the upper shelf of their entire living area is just one after another Emmys. And you're right for medical dramas. And most of these were for the uh, series Nip Tuck. So um, he became a very well-known and, and sought-after um, makeup artist. And uh, and again, I think where I became aware of him was when I started to learn some of the backstory of Planet of the Apes and how he was John Chambers' assistant and how they had worked together and also a TV show about Primal Man. And the weird thing is, as much as I have looked for that original four-part film, I cannot find these movies. If you go online right now, if you go to... Uh, <laughs> Well, actually, you shouldn't. If you go to Amazon <laughs> Amazon, and do a search for a primal man, uh, go ahead. I'll wait here. Um, <laughs> and, and what you'll find is page after page after page of videos of men wearing thongs for movies that I don't think I can really get into. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, okay. Fair enough. But, but you know what? It's funny. This is a great show. This is. It, it, I'm able to realize, you know, that so many of the things that I found a passion for are all linked together because that series that was shot in the early '70s, a stuntman, one of the stuntmen on board, uh, uh, Giannis Prohaska was a big guy in the uh, late 50s and early 60s TV shows, and, and he would build his ape suits. And he had a bear suit, and he had a bunch of kind of amorphous monsters. He was in a number of Star Trek episodes, original series Star Trek episodes. He was the Horta, that creature that burrows through rock. Oh, right. And he was a Mugato that attacks uh, Captain Kirk and bites him. And the uh, <laughs> the Mugato is actually just the Honest Prohaska white gorilla with a horn and a rack on his back. Okay. Who could care? TVs were that big back then. Oh, yeah. But but I had seen an article about him in TV Guide, you know, another nostalgic thing that doesn't really exist anymore. I read about him and I thought, oh, man, this is so much what I want to do with my life. And I wrote a letter to him. I was asking about, you know, the makeup and the monsters and how I've always been aware of his work, even without knowing it. And sad to say, uh, Two months later, when they had filmed the next to the last series, the plane that was transporting the crew back to L.A. crashed into a mountain. Oh, so wow. it still is not completely figured out how it happened and, and why it happened. But, you know, 13 years old, I'm struck by that. I honestly felt like I had lost a family member because he had written me a letter that I had just received a month before this happened, talking about my very nice letter and talking about his characters and oh. saying how nice it was that I had written to him. And uh, in one of my questions was, how can I get in touch with John Chambers? And it was Giannis Prohaska who wrote, yes, here's where you can find him. Here's his shop address. And, and, and he gave to me, that was like just that connection with him where he gave me an address. And that's how I first contacted John Chambers. And we became friends uh, years later when I moved out to Los Angeles. Wow. 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 I've heard so many stories where legends like Dick Smith and John Chambers and Stan Winston, of course, have been so generous to young protégés with their time and their expertise. Yeah, well, and John was a great guy. I lived in Pennsylvania. John lived on the other side of the country, and people would ask me later in life, people would say, wow, so you're from the east part of the country. Did you um, did you ever meet Dick Smith in New York? <laughs> and I said, mm, no. Did you ever meet Tom <laughs> Savini in, in Pennsylvania? Mm, no. Right. <laughs> it's like it was in my own backyard, right? It was like the Wizard of Oz. It was in my own backyard, and I didn't know it. I uh, <laughs> I, had, I had much bigger aspirations, which was, 
the Planet Leaves movies, John Chambers, Tom Berman, these are the guys that I want to fall in with. I think this is going to be good for me. So yeah. I think most things happen for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've mentioned briefly um, Rick Baker is in this movie as a two-headed gorilla yes. that terrorizes <laughs> a grocery store to find bananas. Um, <laughs> was Rick Baker a sort of early idol of yours? Oh, God, yes. Anybody in a gorilla suit. Anybody <laughs> in a gorilla That's who I would contact if anything would have happened to my father and I needed a brand new dad, I would contact somebody that had a gorilla suit. Right. Just, <laughs> yeah, Rick Baker's part, it was actually a cool, creepy thing you know and rick it, it was all about performance and the head on this thing because the body was as interestingly as he was able to make it move that body and, and he, i must i remember rick baker talking about i don't know why i use this striped fur he said he said i think he said like it, it didn't show us contrasting on set but when it went to film it's a very noticeable kind of pattern you know yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. interwoven dark stripes but I didn't care, you know, I was ready to devote myself to this whole bunch, you know, of, of, of cool monster guys. There was a part where, where the, uh, the gorilla, the two-headed gorilla, Rick Baker, escapes, and he's running down a sidewalk, yeah. which I laugh at today because, again, low-budget movies, you know, nobody would care that a, a two-headed gorilla is out, much less running down a sidewalk, a suburban sidewalk. But he was doing hands and, and he went down on his hands and feet. And if I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he's wearing arm extensions, is he? I think he is actually. Oh, yeah. really? Is he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, boy, that uh, that completely fooled me because I thought that is cool that a guy can get down like that. And I used to get down on my hands and feet with no arm extensions. And of course, the pitch of the body and everything was off. And it's an amazing achievement because he only had, I think, uh, it's in his, um, that lovely two-volume set that he did, Metamorphosis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he got $750 and he piled all of it into the two heads and the suit and the arm extensions and the shorter arms for if he needed to hold something and didn't keep anything for himself at all because he just cared so much about putting the best gorilla he could on screen. Yes, mm. yeah. Well, that's totally admirable and, and totally the right approach with the amount of talent he had for that to lead to an incredible career as, as the, you know, the world's most famous, most successful uh, makeup artist. Mm. Yeah. There's a scene where they catch up with him in a uh, produce store, right? Yeah. yeah. He's got a banana in each hand, yeah. I think, or something like that. Yeah, feeding and, each and hand. Here, here, here's another <laughs> weird connection so when i moved when i finally moved out to los angeles my wife and i move out together we're looking for a place and uh this is after we had become befriended with john and joan chambers and the first thing they said was well it would probably be a little crowded to have you stay here which i thought wow really You're, you would i'm not even asking that and he's just saying no that one but john said i have this makeup friend uh, Roy Sebastian, who has a, uh, let me call him and see if there's any openings in the uh, apartment building where he lives. And he was a real character. And then it turns out that uh, we were talking and this movie came up and Ray Sebastian said, oh, in that close up, he said, I was wearing the second gorilla head, leaning in over Rick Baker's shoulder uh -huh. and bringing the banana up. Right? And, I, and, and I didn't, again, it didn't strike me at the time, but John Chambers was able to help me find an apartment because of the guy who wore the head on the Rick Baker two-headed gorilla suit. Wow. It's like, wow. It's like it all just panned out that way to be incredibly uh, fortunate for me to be able to, to do the things I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
talking about creatures, I mean, you've played a few oh. in your time as well. <laughs> Some very famous ones. And as I, I always tell people, my favorite are always the gorillas. And I think that's because somehow that, that connects with my whole kind of coming of age as a monster fan was built on Planet of the Apes movies and, and the Rick mm. Baker gorilla stuff. And even gorillas from the 40s, how, how bad they looked, but how intrinsically attractive they were to me just from a point of view of wanting to emulate those kinds of characters. Right, right. Yeah. It seems to be a rite of passage for special effects guys is making their own gorilla suit. That's very true. And people have asked me, you'll probably be buried in that gorilla suit. And I'm thinking, thinking, well, if I am, tomorrow is going to come and somebody's going to dig it up because it's a pretty expensive gorilla suit to just leave buried in the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a a lot of the attraction to all these sort of creatures is how they move. Like, do you study, like, animal movements or to sort of get inspiration? Yeah, yeah, a lot of studying. And, of course, living in Los Angeles always afforded the possibility to go to the the Los Angeles Zoo. Mm. And in those early days or years that I was back in L.A., the, the zoo was completely different. You could get much closer of the animals and the gorillas had a natural habitat but it was much more contained than it is now so you were almost always guaranteed of uh, being able to see the gorillas as long as it wasn't a blisteringly hot summer day in los angeles right yeah wow one of my favorite anecdotes of yours when you're talking about being in alien suits which you're very famous for because you did it in a number of films is um you talking about how you have to be very careful with your diet when you're preparing <laughs> for an alien movie yes. because those things are quite snug and you didn't really want the alien to have a muffin top at any point. <laughs> That's true. That and my that and my liquid intakes. I didn't want the alien to have a muffin top and a wet groin. <laughs> One or the other would be okay, but two together would be disaster. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, the effects in this, uh, that's the one thing that stood out to me. So I can easily imagine how it inspired you at the age that you saw it, because especially comparing it with The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, which is just such a cheapskate movie. You don't really see any of the surgery. You don't see severed heads. Once the transplant is complete, it's... I mean, they're still doing the same thing with one person standing behind the other, sort of leaning over the shoulder and this sort of white bandage that sort of Mm, covers the whole join up. Mm. But I thought in this film, because you have... I guess it's Tom Berman doing the heads. The heads are amazing. Mm. I mean, Ray Milan's severed head it has jaw movement and yeah. eye movement yeah and w- once i finally moved out to los angeles tom berman was probably one of the first makeup studios where i found work and you know immediately struck a chord with tom berman and one day he brought into work the, this uh super eight millimeter roll of film that he had shot and it was the ray milan head sitting on i think it's sitting on a turntable something but it, he's it's animated wow. right like you said the eyes are blinking them up yeah and and at that period of time i mean today our gorilla head has like a 32 servo motor something like that wow and tom berman just nailed this thing with that the likeness that he created of raymond land and and the articulation i don't yeah i don't believe anything had been seen like that back in those days i mean certainly rick did not have a an animatronic face on the two-headed gorilla and Tom was delivering this beautifully crafted and, and performance-driven Ray Milland head. Mm. Yeah. One little touch I like is I think Ray Milland is actually mimicking the movement of the head just prior to that in the scene where it's still him. He's sort of opening and closing his mouth and fluttering his eyes in the same way. And ah. I thought, credit to him if he actually did that, because it does tie the two together really well. That's very good. Yeah, there was nothing spare. This is definitely the... Uh, 
the Gone with the Wind version of two-headed transplant movies. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it is true that a lot of the time, two movies tend to come out with the same premise, like Armageddon and Deep Impact. And Mm. yeah, these two movies as well are just a year apart. Was it just a stroke of fate? Was it kismet? You know, or was it the fact that there were two two-headed movies? Um, yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it's interesting around this time with the exploitation movies and genre films, being able to do things you just wouldn't expect in movies, and and just coming up with a crazy premise that pretty much is the movie, and everything else didn't really matter. Mm. So movies like The Brain That Wouldn't Die, or um, <laughs> The Man with X-ray Eyes, it's in that sort of genre of film yes and this was a, a certainly a more modern film than those you mm. know those black and white kind of movies and and, uh, sure, sure. and even though it was a modest film by today's standards it, you know it delivered everything you wanted it to it was it really was fun yeah because yeah. it, it does touch on racism but i wish it delved a bit deeper into it because um you know the ray Milan character doesn't really learn anything he doesn't change right he's no. just a bigot and he's just a floating head pretty much at the end of the movie yeah but that's also expecting like a a marvel comic book from the 1960s uh being as something as in-depth as the bible you know sure 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 there's a very deep (laughs) now there's no deep meaning there's nothing structurally or emotionally involved like that as the thing with two heads it was very much a uh, what's it about it's about a thing with two heads I know. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I get what you mean, Dan. I mean, in terms of the depiction of racism, I think it's great that the film definitely isn't on the side of the Ray Milan character. Yes, I yes. mean, even his own colleagues are horrified by the way that he mm. behaves and ultimately don't rescue him when push comes to shove at the end of the movie mm. and just leave him as a disembodied head. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that the film it's kind of toying with some of the themes that were explored more in Jordan Peele's movie Get Out, which is this privileged white rich guy trying to prolong himself by exploiting a black person's body. That's very interesting. It would be crazy, you know, to see Jordan Peele do uh, the thing with two heads. It'd be crazy for us to watch it. It'd be crazy for his career to end it that way. But, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. You're absolutely right. That, that that was a period of time. I'm not a big history buff, certainly on you know American life. But in the 70s, when the 70s, what did you say, 73? It's oh, 72, this one. 72. Yeah. When this movie came out, it, I'm sure it was very surprising to see the black man he lives at the end, does he? Yes, he does. Right, yeah. He rides off into the sunset. Everything's A-OK, all those arteries and veins. And all that stuff's all reconnected. Oh, happy day. Yeah. <laughs> it's three black people driving off into the sunset singing, Oh, happy day. Oh, that's, the credits oh, roll. that's right. Yeah. So, oh, it's now great. Now that song stuck in my head all day. Yeah, definitely a, a tonal shift from the previous scene with the severed head on an operating table with like blood tubes coming out and then <laughs> cut to, oh, happy day. Um, it could have only been better if Ray Milan was singing that song. Yes, <laughs> on the dashboard or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that was very startling to a white audience, right? At the end of the movie. Yeah. Not depending yeah. on where playing in the country to go. Wait, what? It's very cool. It's very bold. Yeah. It was also interesting as well because you have two black characters, one that is more sort of on the working class and then one that's educated. He's a doctor and everyone keeps questioning him. You're a real doctor? Like, yes, I'm a real doctor. I studied for it. It is an interesting dynamic. 
between those two black characters. Yeah, yeah, because Ray Milan's character hired him on the strength of his reputation and then fired him when he shows up because he's black. Yeah. And it's a wonderful piece of acting by Ray Milan, actually, because as soon as Dr. Fred Williams, played by Don Marshall from Land of the Giants, as soon as he walks into the room, Ray Milan looks sort of shocked disgusted and then really disappointed and sort of sinks in his wheelchair Mm. i mean it's a great piece of acting it's it's not subtle but it's still good and it's funny that you mentioned don marshall i was a big fan of land of the giants i was of the age where i saw it when it was actually first being released on on television and wait from week to week to see this and because i'm in favor of closing these little links to my life (laughs) land of the giants Giannis prohaska again played a gorilla in a couple of episodes of Land of the Giants. So it's like, you know, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mine is seven degrees of a gorilla suit. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find in your concrete basement today? Oh, yes. Uh, So Rosie Greer um, is a very famous football star uh, turned actor. But did you know in the uh, 1970s, he had a, a deep love for needlepoint and macrame as well. And he uh, <laughs> released a book called Rosie Greer's Needlepoint for Men in 1973. <laughs> wow. Wow. Another circle has been closed because when <laughs> living out in L.A., my wife was working with somebody and this somebody invited us to their apartment just for, you know, a little party or something, whatever. And we got there and her friend opens the door and says, oh, greets us. And he says, see that door right there? That's where Rosie Greer lives. Oh, wow. And I, and I pictured him inside, you know, whatever. Uh, knit one, pearl two, whatever the hell, however you do that. Uh, I, I heard it. I put my ear up to the door. There's somebody knitting inside here. <laughs> Yes, just click, 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 click. (laughs) It's very relaxing. I've heard quite a few stars that knit on set, actually, just as a relaxing, because there's a lot of wait, 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 isn't there in film production? Mm. So they end up with, you know, whole scarves and things. (laughs) Very long scarves. Yes. And that's our trivia. That's our trivia. Another thing, of course, that this film is tapping into that craze in the, I guess, of the early 70s of the car chase movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And the dullest of car chases, right? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Rosie, Greer is, Rosie Greer is on his bike and with Ray Milan, a, a rubber Ray Milan head strapped to his shoulder. And uh, <laughs> he's uh, really taking his time on that dirt bike <laughs> driving around and... and uh, why they can't stop him, I don't know. I, I think the real thing the movie says is that the, the police back then in that part of town were not too smart. Yeah, yeah. A lot of cars rolling down hills or like going straight into ditches for some reason. Yeah, and, yeah, and I have to be honest with you. I thought I have a duty to watch this movie again before this show. And I thought I can't do it. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I thought, I, honestly, I thought maybe it's better for me to maybe it's better. Because if we talk about it, I can preface my opinions today with how I remember it being. So you're working purely on nostalgia goggles at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I got to tell you, (laughs) nostalgia has gotten me through a lot in this business. (laughs) It wasn't a good movie. I mean, it wasn't a useful movie during my career if I'm having a discussion with a director and, you know, I don't want to suddenly blurt out, you know, this is like that part from The Thing with Two Heads. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, 
and their reaction was very much like yours and Dan's, which was just, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. So it had limited, <laughs> limited usage. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of car chases, this really does seem to have been a craze around this time because uh, American Graffiti was around the same time, wasn't it? 1973? Yeah, it must have been. Although, uh, although I think in the aspect of that particular movie, uh, which was done as a as a, uh, a vintage throwback movie from the 60s. I think car yeah, chases okay. were popular in real life in the 60s, just transcribed into the film world of the 60s and 70s. Mm. Yeah, and there were so many of them as well. Fun fact, Ron Howard, the star of American Graffiti, his first film as a director was a road action comedy film called Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> No relation to the game series. You also had the Disney Herbie movies, but Reynolds had two series of this sort of thing. He had Smokey and the Bandit in the late 70s and early 80s and the Cannonball Run movies. And even the Bond movies were affected by this trend. So Live and Let Die in 73 and The Man with the Golden Gun in 74 both had Clifton James playing this comical Southern sheriff in these car chase sequences. Mm. Yeah, and also on TV, The A-Team, that had come out in the early 80s. I think every episode of that included a car flying off a ramp, of flipping, coming down and crashing. And then as was the point of the creators of that show, there was always the shot that showed the bad guys climbing out because you didn't want to, yeah. to evoke the imagery <laughs> of people dying in a, in a car wreck. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's very similar in this movie as well. They seem to always show the policemen climbing out of their cars, if they're right. <laughs> yeah, they right. do. There's even the pair of cops that crash into the ditch and then one of them says to the other, look out the window and see if anybody else is coming because there just seems to be one car after another piling on top of them (laughs) it goes on forever yeah their comedic timing was not at its best yeah (laughs) the the whole car chase is like yeah 20 minutes or something and seems to be taken from like another movie because it's very funny (laughs) (laughs) and and i wonder i think now the the reason for lengthening all those car chases and that whole long thing with cars crashing up in their entirety was because they had to find some way to turn this into an 85-minute movie. Right, yeah. <laughs> So they had to pad everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after all that, they end up back at the secret lab again at the end. So they've gone on this whole circuit straight back yeah. to where they yeah. started. It's, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, wow, this thing is, if you can find this on streaming, because tonight I either have to find it on streaming or I have to go dig through all my old DVDs and find it. I just feel like I need to watch it now after our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's on Amazon. I think it's there if you want to get it. Uh, does Amazon have a highbrow area for uh, movies? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. It's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite head-turning parts of the film in a number of car-rolling categories. Best quote. My favourite line of dialogue in the movie comes from Jack Moss's wife, I believe it's his wife. Yes, Lila Moss, played by Chelsea Brown. And when she's presented Uh. with her husband with an extra head, she says quite sheepishly, Honey, I was wondering, do you have two of anything else? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a good thing I wasn't in the middle of that when my dad came home to pick me up. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Tom, is there anything in terms of dialogue you remember? Well, I was going to, I was going to venture my own version of a Rick Baker gorilla grunting, but then... <laughs> <laughs> 
But then, courtesy of my computer right here, <laughs> it even says right here they're talking about goofy lines. And, and Dr. Kirshner says, Phil, get me another body. <laughs> and then, and then in another in another crazy interaction, Kirshner says, "What the hell's the matter with you, Moss? Get back to bed." And Jack Moss replies, "You jive." Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> yeah, the dialogue is not wow. bad in this movie. Best hair or costume? I mean, I guess I could mention the gorilla suit, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that might be Tom's. <laughs> yes, that's funny, Dan. That would have been my answer. Well, well, actually, the uh, the the best hair and the best suit is the gorilla. Yeah. Yes, despite the stripes, because I think when when Rick bought it, he was looking for some fur, and I think he found a bed throw or something. I think that's what it oh, is. Oh wow! He thought, oh yeah, there's two tones in here. He didn't realize that they were stripes. <laughs> so. Uh, Easy mistake to make, I guess. Mm, mm. Uh, for me, my favorite piece of costuming is uh, when Moss escapes from Dr. Kirshner's house, one of the henchmen or doctors, I'm not sure which, runs down the stairs in a bright red onesie, oh, like yes. the underwear that cowboys wear in old westerns with the like buttoned up hatch at the back. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, gives chase with Dr. Desmond in a car, still wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> Most 70s moment. This might have been something that you've touched on, but certainly the the, uh, the car chases with um, what are predominantly, you know, look, used looking vehicles that came out of some <laughs> used car lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Really, really crap, crap 70s, early 70s uh, car designs. Yeah, mm, mm. I think that's a good pick. Yeah. For me, I thought I would go for the telethon which uh, in this case is nurses in a room frantically calling around for a body to stick Dr. Kirshner's head onto. So, oh, yes. That's slightly right. different from your usual charity drive from the 70s, which right. was the heyday of the, the TV and the telephone and national TV telethons during uh -huh. that period, I remember. Right, yes, yes. If it were done today, it'd be, it'd be so much handier because she could have any places that supplied bodies just on, on, on auto dial on her phone, right? One button and you get a body. Oh, yeah. There's probably an app for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's 70s for me. Uh, the retractable car headlights, the ones that would fold oh, into yes. the car. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Why don't we have those anymore? <laughs> right. Right. My feeling, I remember driving a, a, a used car. I remember, man, I, bought, I you know, saved up money, bought a used car, and it, and it had that feature. Um, mm. Retractable headlights that would not move because the mechanism had been burned out. I didn't feel... Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> favorite scene. No surprise, my favorite scene was, was when we finally caught up with... Uh, Rick Baker in his gorilla suit and a second head sitting next to him. Yeah. <laughs> Eating a banana. Eating yeah. a banana. Two bananas. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice touch that the bananas are going into the separate heads as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I wonder, how many takes did that get? You know, it's, it's one thing to hit your own mouth with a, with a banana. It's, it's a different thing to hit a rubber head on your shoulder. Yeah. With a banana. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite scene is a, a small one. It's a dinner scene where Jack and Lila are gently ribbing the doctor's discomfort with African-American culture by threatening to eat fried possum chitterlings and sing spirituals after dinner. Oh, yes. And, and what I love about it is Lila's sweet nature 
just automatically comes out when Dr. Kirshner asks for a cigarette and she just immediately says, oh, sure, honey, and, and lights one for him. But then Rosie Greer complains because he's trying to eat and there's he's ah, breathing, yes, yes. Dr. Kirshner's breathing in and Rosie Greer's got smoke coming out of his mouth. That's right. <laughs> it's quite a cute moment, mm, actually. Mm, mm. Most cliche moment. I've got to say, and although we enjoyed it, the mad scientist gorilla getting loose and going uh, crazy in town, I think, is pretty much a staple of these movies. Yeah. It even cropped up in um, Hollow Man. Yes, I've read that too. Paul yeah. Verhoeven's movie, so it's Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So even in a relatively recent movie, there was a the mad scientist gorilla got loose at some point. Well, and 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 <laughs> just just to make sure not a single stone is left unturned. Um, that was me in a gorilla suit that we had built for Hollow Man. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh this is realize. perfect. This is perfect. I love, I love talking <laughs> to people where they, where they say something something was cool about a, a gorilla suit movie I was in, and they get to say, that was me, man. Wow. That was you. I did not make that connection. That's I'm a, so sorry. This is the full gorilla <laughs> circle. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> What was your biggest cliche in this movie, Tom? Well, now it's the fact that uh, that uh, I was a runaway gorilla in a Paul Verhoeven movie. <laughs> no, I think I think for me again, the uh, it's not hard to find the cliches because uh, we certainly talked about them all so far on this on this program. But uh, it was just the uh, the birth of uh, dynamic car chases was happening here. They weren't they weren't mm. demanding and they weren't iconic, but they were. Somebody was was ready to do them because time felt right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Best special effect. Who are we going to pick between here? Uh, are we putting Tom on the spot, picking between Rick Baker and Tom Berman? <laughs> That's yeah. now again. Uh, uh, I have love for Tom Berman. I have love for Rick Baker. But but uh, I kind of in this for this question, I, I opt towards the Rick Baker side of the scale and say uh, certainly the um, the two headed gorilla. Oh, okay. Yes. Interesting. I was blown away by Ray Milan's head, so I'll uh, I'll opt, I'll opt for that. Yeah, one. me too. Me too. <laughs> I I was just amazed at how good the likeness is because I suppose you you would have been doing sort of life casts even back in the early seventies, but that doesn't always necessarily. I mean, I don't know the technicalities of it, but I I remember reading that sometimes that doesn't quite work because the sort of expression that you pull or the weight of the thing that you're making the mold with, it, it, it has effects on, on the likeness. I don't know uh, how true that is. Oh, so you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when we, when we used to do, uh, you know, alginate, uh, you know, uh, or even silicone materials to cover the face, the weight, it's what you're supposed to put it on very thin so that the weight doesn't pull down the, the muscles, you know, or, or, you know, the whatever looseness you have of skin. But you know, today we we simply scan them, scan people. You know, three D scan. Oh wow! Print, wow. And it's and it's, it's a beautiful way to do it because everything is uh, is completely natural in terms of the the masses of the face. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible work because mm -hmm. I imagine there must be some sort of sculpting work to sort of bring it closer to Ray Milan's actual face. But mm. yeah, yeah, it's really quite an astonishing likeness. Yes. Yeah, I think the trickiest thing on fake heads it still is, has always been the eyes, right? Because 
uh, well, right. early life cast, the person always had their eyes closed. So you had to skillfully go in and open them. And, they, and there's so much visual information when you connect with another person. Studies have shown that the first thing you look at is their eyes, and then you look at their mouth while they're speaking. Right. So it's you can mess up a, a, a great life cast if those eyes aren't, aren't properly done. Mm. Wow. I can believe it. Favorite sound effect. For me, I love the foley of the footsteps of the alarmed shoppers as they fled the store that Rick Baker is terrorizing because it's lots and lots of overdubbed. It sounds like empty shoes on a wooden board. <laughs> it's the sort of thing my brother and I used to do when we used to do comedy overdubs of Star Wars when we were kids. Just to, to insert really high-class jokes, you know, like farting. Ah, you yes. know, re really top-notch <laughs> top notch stuff. But coupled with the undercranking and the, the lack of any uh, background voice actor work, that nobody's saying a word, no screams, nothing. It's just lots and lots of fast footsteps. <laughs> yeah. I was killing myself laughing. I thought it was great. <laughs> All right, now I, have to, now I have to watch it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go rogue on this because I don't remember for sure, but uh, there must be some scene where during this car chase where cars are, are spinning across the, uh, the sandy desert floor, but you're hearing tires screech on asphalt, right? Oh, and, all and, the time, and, yes. I feel, and I feel brave here because if not in this movie, it's at least a dozen other movies in that time period. Yeah, yes. yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> Most funniest moment. For me, it was a visual gag. It's the gang on the on the dirt bike in that lengthy, lengthy scene in the chase uh, scene. Yeah. Uh, they head up a, an idyllic hill on their dirt bike. And just as they're about to get to the top, they hastily turn around and come back down again. And then this whole row of police cars fill the horizon as they oh, crest the yes, hill. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah. And it's kind of a Western trope, but usually there it's, you know, it's Native Americans that are filling the horizon. But in this case, it's the cops, mm. which I thought was a nice little twist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the car chase really did remind me of the car chase in Blues Brothers, like how comedic it was. Right. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Was it influential? Because it was a very funny car chase. I mean, implausible for most of it, but yeah, really funny. <laughs> so much screen time for cops that you've never seen before. Like that one mm -hmm. that tries to scramble up the bank. It's like, why are we watching this? <laughs> oh, padding, I guess. Yeah. Right. I think it is because it's not a long movie by any means. So if the car capers weren't there, I'm not sure what you'd be watching, to be I honest. I agree, I think so. I think that, that's, all, that's easy fodder to just cut in anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, cut to the chase, quite literally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's our Moobly Awards. Yes. Hey, this is Don Mancini, the creator of Chucky, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's final verdict time. Should 1972's The Thing with Two Heads be set free from the oubliette and ride into the sunset on a motocross bike and be loved by all? <laughs> or should it be decapitated from its two-headed body and shoved into the oubliette to be forgotten forever? Tom, you are our guest today. You've gifted us with <laughs> this wow. fabulous movie. Should, should it be watched by all? <laughs> No matter what I say, no matter what I say, Dan, after that introduction, uh, <laughs> cast away into the, okay, 
No, I, I, absolutely. With, with all seriousness, gentlemen, this, I don't even want to call it a movie. It's a film. No, gentlemen, it is a film. Nay, a film production. So, uh, and a quality one. No, I love this movie. You got, again, you got to be in the right, the right age, the right spirit, and the, uh, and the first time you're staying alone in your house when your parents are gone. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those are the perfect viewing conditions, I think. <laughs> I struggle with this one, to be honest, because um, the effects are incredible. Um, I was really impressed with the early work of uh, Rick Baker and, and Tom Berman's work on the heads. And when you compare it to the incredible two-headed transplant, this thing is a masterpiece. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> but still, I have to say, there isn't a lot going on here. I mean, it's it's sort of head goes on car chase head comes off <laughs> so I, I i think i would struggle to recommend it to everyone i it feels bad consigning it to the oubliette forever because there are some important things in here so i think if you're interested in black exploitation movies or special effects i think it would be a, a, a fun time to spend 80 minutes but i think for a general audience i think i would say no yeah well no well no it's all on you dan oh no too much pressure <laughs> uh i i have to re regrettably agree with uh, Conrad, <laughs> I, I think it does touch on a lot of really great ideas, and I think it would have been better if they kind of delved into it more, like the whole uh, racism uh, and 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 even just the the idea of you know two people controlling one body. That would have been more interesting. The sort of the struggle, but yeah, it, uh, interesting movie to watch. But I think it it, it is like you said, Tom. It, it is a very specific taste of cinema. Like if you love exploitation films or of 70s movies of that sort of lower budget end this is this is a really interesting film but um i don't know whether i would uh recommend it to anyone i think they'll be quite shocked <laughs> i hate you guys <laughs> okay. but I, i'm still glad i watched it in terms yes. of, of a cinema experience. Like, I'm still glad right. I can say I have watched The Thing with Two Heads. Yes. And Tom Woodruff Jr. recommended yeah. it to us. Yeah. I mean, that's a claim to fame. In, in, my, in my final defense of this movie, everybody <laughs> looks at car crashes. Yes, that's true. It's <laughs> very yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll just uh, hack this thing off and just uh, throw it back in there. <laughs> Marvellous. Well, Tom, it has been absolutely amazing having you here with us, reminiscing on uh, your own connections with this film. Yes. And they turned out to be quite many. Yeah, <laughs> it a lot of gorillas. <laughs> Who knew? Thanks so much for nominating this film and talking about it with us. Where can people follow you and find out more about what you're working on? Uh, yes, you can find me on Instagram at Tom underscore Woodruff Jr. Yes. Great, great, great. <laughs> Is there anything on the horizon coming up that we should be looking forward to? I mean, Prey was amazing, uh, by the way. Well, well, I can certainly say this, just so I don't give people the wrong idea. Uh, I'm not retiring. I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a small project lined up. Um, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in Pennsylvania. I, I prefer to live here. I hope to work here, um, and I have some some projects, literally, uh, uh, that I have uh, done some screenplays on that 
I may be joining up with producers soon and, and hopefully uh, uh, able to to be able to get into a position of, of promoting uh, some kind of quality creature effects films, you know, that that have a, uh, an interesting take on them. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm just glad to see that practical effects are still a thing these days. Well, when you if you if you have not yet seen it, you know, and I, I encourage everybody to go see it. No reason least of which is is, is me getting my SAG uh, uh, payments. Um, but <laughs> beyond that, no, they, this I think Prey has a great balance of of uh, physical effects for the, the the new predator creature that we we've designed and created. Um, as well as just the right amount of, uh, of digital work to enhance rather than mm. replace anything. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 another good great example of of uh, the best use of both both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, well, I right. loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, I mean, looking back on your career, I'd just like to ask, like, what what was one of your favorite sort of creatures or <laughs> effects that you've done? Uh, my favorite, because I do obviously I get asked this a lot. My favorite film uh that i've i've worked on is um pumpkinhead which uh, yeah which, yeah, yeah i don't know if anybody anybody nominated that um it's certainly no thing with two heads but it's also not terminator you know i think it's a good solid it's a first directing effort from Stan winston mm. and you can tell he had a love for the material he turned all the design work on the creature over to uh me and alec gillis and, and john rosengrant and shane mahan we were stan's core group for so many years and that was thrilling you know he didn't he didn't he, he said just show me some drawings of what you're going to do he signs off on them and uh we would send pictures but but he you know he had total trust in us and he was so focused on getting this movie into production and then shooting that we really had a a, a level playing field of being able to add put together things that we wanted to see in this pumpkin head creature yeah wow yeah that one is on our list to do at some point uh, I have never seen it. Yes. So I am looking forward to it. I love that yeah. movie. <laughs> love it. Well, then I'm good. I'm glad that I sent this movie because this will make anything look great after. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, if you want to keep up with us, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. And if you want to email us, we are movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can get access to extended pieces of our episodes. And for $5, you get access to extended versions of our special guest interviews and access to our monthly minisodes, which are vidisodes these days. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, of course, we have merchandise as well on Redbubble. Uh, everything you could ever want. And you might even want to check out our YouTube channel where we have finally reached a thousand subscribers. Woohoo! Yes, yes, we have. Uh, it's quite an achievement. Uh, yeah, please watch uh, some of the panels that we did for Iconicon. Um, mm. My favourite is the one about the Star Trek restoration of the motion picture. Yes. Very interesting, despite the fact I haven't even seen the movie but I was yeah, really <laughs> captivated throughout that discussion. Yeah, those guys were just fascinating and went into so much detail. And it is, uh, yeah, our most watched video on YouTube now. Right. I guess that's just the word Star Trek. Well. <laughs> I guess anything Star Trek, it's going to get views. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
So, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, next time we're popping back to my favourite place. It's the 80s. Oh, of course. We will be watching the 1981 crime horror film... Wolfen. Oh, werewolves? Is that right? I think so. I think it's werewolves. It's based on a novel by Whitley Stryber, who's probably most famous for his alien abduction biography, Communion. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, from what I remember, it's a slightly different take on the whole werewolf lore. Okay, okay. But, uh, I did see it, but I do not remember it very much. I just remember being underwhelmed by it. Oh, so, okay. interested to revisit it. Yeah, I haven't okay. seen enough werewolf movies and it's gonna it's gonna be good to add to my sort of trend of watching catching up on these werewolf movies after after watching uh, american werewolf in paris so surely oh it's better than that movie <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean that's, that's a pretty low bar <laughs> yeah we haven't done many werewolf movies on the show have we no ginger snaps comes to mind ginger snaps is i think the only one i can yeah, remember maybe maybe yeah. Will someone be joining us? They will, yes. We will be having an old friend back on the show. So really looking forward to that. Yes, me too. Me too. Well, Tom, it's been amazing having a chance to speak to you and to just um, laugh over a, a fascinating, quirky movie. So mm. thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both. I really enjoy being here. Appreciate the uh, the invitation. Okay, listeners, until next time. Look out for mad scientists with hands full of chloroform. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> The reason you don't understand, Doctor, is you're a bigot. A bigot of the highest caliber. And because of that, you've underestimated me and my intelligence.